Flying an airplane loaded with drugs into the United States in the 1970s and 80s often meant running a gauntlet of radar and surveillance aircraft. As the years went by, and the smuggling pilots and those who hired them became more creative in evading capture, drug interdiction agents in the air and on the ground became better at catching them. It was a never-ending game of aerial cat and mouse, with the greatest risk in the game falling upon the pilots, and by extension, the organizations that had purchased the planes and bought the drugs packed into those aircraft. Since most smugglers of that era keep their secrets, it's impossible to say how many pilots were freelancers running their own operations, and how many flew as a hired hand. But it's fair to assume that for many, it was just a job they were paid to do. And most of the organizations that hired them were not run by pilots, but by people who saw pilots as another valuable resource in the business of feeding America's appetite for illicit substances. In this episode, we'll hear from two smugglers who depended on the skills and bravado of pilots who often put everything on the line for a flying job. This is Episode 6 of Fly By Night. My name is Marty Rollins, and in the 1970s and early 80s, I ran one of the biggest pot smuggling operations in the southeastern United States, along with some of my other friends from Michigan and some of my friends from Atlanta. If you smoke pot in Atlanta or, or Ann Arbor during that time, chances are good that you smoke some of the pot that we brought in from Columbia. You met Marty Rollins of Atlanta in the last episode as he told the story of buying a DC-4 and hiring a pilot to fly 7,000 pounds of marijuana from Columbia to a landing on a mountain northwest of Atlanta. But before then, Rollins was just one of many entrepreneurs of the drug era, starting small and working his way up. In the beginning, he was buying and selling small amounts of pot in Atlanta to finance his own use, and if he was lucky, he would have a few dollars left over. Then he discovered that a trip to the north could bring in considerably more income, and his illegal business began to grow. And marijuana is expensive. You know, it's just put it simple. So you have to buy a little, and then you have to sell a little bit, and that will live one thing or another. And uh, I ended up finding a friend that had, uh, I met from New York. They were, well, they were paying ungodly amounts of money up there. I was buying pot for here, $300 a pound, selling in Manhattan for 1000 so I was going to stay in at, you know, the Brits and all everywhere, you know, New York, having a ball, spending, you know, all this money. And then went to a party at Andy Warhol's apartment and all this kind of stuff. Even that was sporadic because you had to find the person to get the pot from. And it wasn't like it was always there. And so I realized pretty early on in this, the way to not ever run out is to go to Columbia and get it yourself. Rollins had two acquaintances named Mike. One was his partner in his business and the other one he called California Mike. California Mike had two valuable possessions at that time. He had a boat, and he had connections in Colombia. And he knew how to get the pot from South America and drop it off in the Bahamas so that others could take it to the States using their own boat. California Mike, he was a salty old sea dog. He had already sailed around the Cape twice by the time he was 26 years old. I mean, he never got off his boat, period. I mean, he literally didn't. And he was getting piled out of Columbia, just taking the Bahamas, dropping it off, calling somebody, telling him to come get it. He'd, go, he'd head back out. No, we worked out a deal with him where we would, um, we're going to use his boat, and me and Mike and our crew, three other guys, would go down, and we would meet the contact in Columbia, and then when we brought it back, then we would split it up. We finally got it back, 
and I got it all sold and everything. And then me and Mike, you know, split away from the California Mike. And I spent four, I spent 45 days on that boat and I never want to be on another one again. Cause there's a, when you're on a sailboat for that long, there's a half inch of salt everywhere. When we got it back, you know, the, the me and Mike looked at each other and said, there's gotta be a better way of life. I said, let's buy a big airplane. And he said, so that's pretty much where we were pretty forced into going to the big airplanes at that time. The decision to buy a plane led to a decision to build a runway located near a large-scale marijuana farm in Colombia. That led Rollins to work with the Wayu people, an indigenous ethnic people who live in the desert area of the peninsula that points into the Caribbean Sea and borders both Colombia and Venezuela. With the help of select members of the tribe, Rollins not only built the longest runway in the area, he built a years-long relationship, a friendship that had him attending weddings and other family events. The flat desert area of the peninsula was ideal for the runway Rollins needed, one oriented for the prevailing winds and capable of handling planes the size of his DC-4. Rollins remembers telling the tribal leader how important it was for the runway to be long, and the leader took it from there. I said, listen, we need 3,500 feet, you know, uh, going northeast to southwest. So that was the building of the airstrip out there, and that was the first, the only airstrip that was there at that time there was one airstrip down there that was about 1,500 feet that was made for small, air, small airplanes. And then we built this 3,500 strip about five miles from the, from, the, from the coast. After an initial run with a load into Florida, Rollins and his partners decided that a second custom-built runway was in order, the one that was featured in the last episode. But after that misadventure, he switched to smaller aircraft, twins that would carry less but do so faster and far less conspicuously. It was a method of operation he would continue for years. So I went to twins after that, and I probably did 15 or 20 twins after, for the next 10, 12 years. Basically, you go out to the airport and you get on the airplane, you fly down Columbia, and you fill it up, pot, and you fly back and, and land. <laughs> fly in 180 knots, you know, the visual flight rules, which all we had to do was land at a port of entry to be in compliance. And so we did everything except for land at the port of entry. We just kind of made up our own port of entry. For Marty Rollins, one of his most memorable flights was also his last. A flight in a Beechcraft King Air that nearly came to grief in the ocean waters near Belize. Well, the last one I did, uh, I had a King Air. And we left and we flew down to Columbia. And when we landed, the wind was blowing out of the wrong direction and blowing hard. And the pilot told me, and we were going to be, uh, we had a place in Belize we were going to land. Uh, you know, it was a six and a half, seven hour flight. So uh, when we, the pilot told us, it said, I had nine and a half hours of fuel on board. I had a bladder tank in there, which gave us nine and a half hours of flight time on there. The pilot said, we ain't going to make it because of the way the winds were blowing. And sure enough, we took off and we flew for nine and a half hours and uh, nothing but clouds the whole way. He went to every altitude, did everything he could. We couldn't get anything but about 120, 125 out of this day kind of thing. I had two options. There was uh, uh, an airstrip on an island off the coast of Belize that we could use off-season to refuel or during the season when people were down there skin diving, we had to use a road over on the mainland, which is another probably 10-minute flying time or something like that. When we got 
Right at the coast of Belize, the clouds broke. And we looked straight down, and the, we were right dead over the island. And he made a the downwind leg, and, and we, we landed. As soon as we landed, the left engine quit. As soon as we went down to the end of the runway and turned around and came back, the right engine stopped. And that was after nine and a half hours of flying. So that was pretty much my last hoorah after that one. <laughs> so I was close enough to dying that I could get because, like I said, it, you know, one more minute, it wouldn't have been, you know, so lucky, you know. Fortunately, I never had anybody die flying from me personally, but I had quite a few pilots that got killed flying for other people after me. And so... I was lucky on that one. Marty Rollins' smuggling career spanned 15 years, from 1974 to 1989. It began with small-time sales of a few ounces of pot and ended with Rollins becoming one of the largest importers by plane of that time. But he also served a total of nine years in prison, losing nearly a decade of his life locked up with prisoners doing time for violent crime. And for a time, he was incarcerated with a well-known smuggler. When Rollins was released, he began a life that he probably never imagined during his heyday of DC-4s full of pot. He married a high school sweetheart, worked in the mortgage business, and took up golf again, a sport he played in high school. He settled into a pleasant and ordinary life until it was interrupted by cancer in 2014, cancer that has returned several times. So in 2019, Marty Rollins decided to freely share the story of his career as a smuggler, and to share his belief that marijuana be further decriminalized, especially for medical use. He's passionate about criminal justice reform that would allow people in prison, prisoners jailed for what he considers to be victimless crimes, to be released. Recently, he was the subject of a book written by a childhood friend. The book is about his early years in Atlanta and his time as a smuggler. The book is entitled Flying High, The Great Cannabis Caper, and you can find a link for buying the book in the Episode 6 page at flybynightpodcast.com. When asked for a final thought about the value of the pilots who made his smuggling career possible, Marty Rollins said, I just go out and find pilots, because that's the only person I needed. When Fly By Night returns, you'll meet another Atlanta-based smuggler, a childhood friend of Marty Rollins who built his own business by buying planes, hiring pilots, and making good use of the flat farm fields of the Deep South. Derry Ferris grew up in the same middle-class Atlanta neighborhood as his friend Marty Rollins, and decades later, they're still close. When Rollins returned home after a hospital stay some months ago, Ferris was there to bring lunch and to reminisce about their shared and individual careers in smuggling. Ferris recalls one of his first experiences in selling pot, and it was, at the least, an inauspicious start. First pound of pot I ever bought was actually grass. Not pot, like grass seed. <laughs> First pound of pot I ever bought was grass seed. Once Ferris worked out his supplier problem, he gradually began to deal in larger amounts. That eventually led to driving pot from Florida to Georgia, pot that had made its way to Florida by boat. That experience was a stepping stone into smuggling by air. I started driving some of the pot back from that first boat trip. Matter of fact, the first time I drove any back, I went down there and I was with Mike 
We got dead drunk, drinking tequila all night. I didn't think I was leaving that day. And then Mike came out at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, hey, all the pots in the rental car, you got to leave now. I went directly to a truck stop and slept for six hours with a pot in the back. And Mike called up uh, another guy that was involved, a guy named Ricky, and uh, he wanted to uh, move his boat from the Caymans up to, uh, excuse me, from Aruba uh, through the uh, Caymans up to uh, Norman's Key. And so I crewed up with him. It was like a two-week, you know, trip. And I liked the sailing. I thought it was lots of fun. But anyway, that that re- initiated our relationship and then he told me that he was going to be bringing in a dc4 in the mississippi and did i want to unload and help you know i said well yeah so uh the day came and we went over there no hitches came in is it a existing airport they had some kind of contact with and i think i made twenty thousand dollars or something like that and so then after that i said well you know I saw how I could, you could make money. Well, I had a friend that had an airport that he ran a fixed base, fixed base at a very small airport, pretty close to Sierraville, Tennessee, right outside of there. And so I told them, well, look, I got an airport if y'all want to use it. And so we went up there. And what we used to do back then is we'd sort of camp out for two or three days around the airport in the woods and just see what kind of activity and all that. Of course, my buddy actually worked there. Uh, and so we brought a DC four into there. And of course I got a bigger chunk of the action, you know, providing the airport and then loading. And also we, you know, I arranged for the stash up in the mountains right around there. Taking what he learned from the successful runs in the Mississippi and Tennessee, Derry Ferris was now fully prepared to branch out on his own. That meant finding his own pilots, planes, and the right places to land and offload the shipments. His first plane would be an old surplus firefighting plane from California. I knew a, a real good friend of mine that ran a hunting preserve in Alabama. And I thought that would be a, a good situation to, um, you know, all flow. Well, through just the early part of that, I met a friend of his who was a crop duster. His name was John, and, and uh, he had that Mustang he used to do acrobatics in and all like that. And so uh, Mike and I decided to go in partners, and uh, I found a plane out in Chico, California, those planes that um, fight the forest fires. They had actually several for sale, and they were the planes that they used fighting the forest fires, and, you know, where they dropped the quarter, the chemicals and all. And I remember it had a rip, the, the tail was painted orange. Uh, so I, I knew from the previous trips we'd made, you know, the big problem was moving these planes around, you know, because they get red tagged or whatever. And so we made a dummy corporation, you know, when the feds come, everything's up, up and, you know, we, you know, get it all registered and everything, which we did, but it was all fake. Now that Ferris had a plane, he needed qualified pilots. His main pilot was his friend, John. And at the time, John was only rated for single engine aircraft. His second pilot, though younger, did have a multi-engine rating, but backed out of the project before the first flight. So now it was time to get John upgraded to multi-engine aircraft. So we stayed out there about a month to get him finally multi-engine rated and, um, you know, DC-4 rated. 
And so we uh, ferried the plane back back uh, to Fort Lauderdale area, and um, we did a uh, trip to Mississippi. So back to Mississippi, and um, successful. And then we decided we'd get a DC seven, which was a big mistake. What it was, it was just greed for the DC seven, and we pretty much did the same thing. It was based out of Burbank, was where the plane was in the airport out there. And then they took it on a couple of test flights. But, you know, they weren't rated for that plane. And we sort of had a wink, wink, nod with the owner of the plane, that this plane broker. And so they had the plane uh, ferried to Barstow. And so we, we were sort of suspicious of this guy. But anyway, we were topped off with fuel. And who was going was uh, the two pilots. And we had a Colombian pilot that was going to lead them where to go in Colombia. And one other guy. But I was suspicious, so I had a, a kid that worked for us, and we stashed him on the plane, had to spend the night on the plane the night before he was leaving. See, and we had it locked. We locked him in there. And he said he heard somebody around the plane. He thought he heard some talking. And I, uh, I don't know if the thing was sabotaged or what. I don't know. Uh, Ricky, who was on the plane, he feels like it was, but they lost the engine on takeoff, and then they were going to – come around again then they lost a second engine and then there was some power lines is it go over or under them and they tried to go under them and clipped them and and it killed uh killed bill he died john was severely injured well everybody was severely injured but it, it killed and after that mike and i sort of went our different ways uh and then i uh you know kept up in the business with some other people After the tragedy in Barstow with the DC-7, Ferris started over, and that meant using his DC-4 to bring in a load from Columbia to a crop duster strip in Alabama. They offered the crop duster and his family a paid vacation, and with them away, the run was successful. But soon after, just as Ferris was preparing for another flight, an accident once again turned his life upside down, this time killing his pilot and good friend, John. And then John, and after that low, we just get ready to do another one. And he uh, was doing some acrobatics, and he basically just couldn't pull out of a dive, went straight into the earth, and he died. Really a great guy, really a really great guy, good, real good friend of mine. I mean, we kicked around a lot, hotel rooms, you know, partying and all like that. The loss of his friend was a steep price to be paid. But Ferris and his partners were determined to continue. And the next trip ended with a successful landing, but a sad ending for the plane. For that trip, they had chosen a bean field, long enough to land a plane with a large load. But when it arrived, there was an issue with the landing gear and a tire, so they couldn't fly it out. Usually, a takeoff would have quickly followed the offloading of the marijuana into waiting trucks. At that point, the plane would be lightly loaded and could launch into the dark night. On this night, they were forced to leave it there, Knowing that it would soon be found and possibly traced back to them, they decided to destroy as much evidence as they could, and that meant torching the plane. We had to leave the airplane there, so what we did, we blew it up. And we made a trail. Everybody left, except for me and one of the Cuban guys, and uh, we ran a, like a trail of gas up, you know, leading to the plane, and we stuffed some rags around the tanks and all like that and poured it all you know, around the thing. But And so we lit it, but what we didn't know was how quick. I mean, it was like almost, we didn't get like 
we made a pretty long trail, but we didn't get like 30 feet, four. I mean, we ran, but and it this thing blew to high heaven. And I remember a big piece of metal landed like one more than like 10 feet from us and dirt and, you know, real loud, extremely loud. But yeah, we blew it up, you know, because we couldn't have it be traced, although it did end up getting traced back. But uh, they didn't find it for three days. The guy went out to there to check on his bean field. <laughs> a plane sitting there, you know, uh, blown up. One last thing of those type planes, uh, they did a, one last DC-4 at, there was a airstrip, it was an old training uh, strip where they used to train pilots right outside of Tuskegee. And uh, very, very big airport. And of course the weeds, the grass, it wasn't, it wasn't an active airport, it hadn't been used since World War II. And the grass and all that was like growing over it and all. And Bobby, my my guy had hunting preserve, he knew the caretaker there. And so we, this is the last one I did with these guys, and so we arranged to do another DC-4. And the pilot, a guy named Earl, sort of short, red-headed man, older guy, great pilot, get real foggy, like foggy something terrible. We, we need to call this thing off. It, it, it's foggy. We, we can never do this. Well, no, they left. They're on the way back. At that point in time, for landing lights, we used flares and on stakes. And I had my guys, there's like about eight of us stationed out at various, you know, and there he was, and it was really foggy. The fog had lifted a little bit. Uh, so we lit, lit the, uh, the flares, and Earl, he, he couldn't get oriented. You know, he just couldn't get oriented to it, and, and, and I was talking to him on the radio. I said, well, just, just don't land, but just come down real low where you think it is. And he came down, and, and he was off a little bit, but he was going like perpendicular to where he was supposed to land. But he did see the lights, and he was pretty low. I would say maybe a few hundred feet. I mean, he was low, and, and he didn't have his gear down either. He was just buzzing it. And real loud, I said, we're going to get caught. I mean, he's flying. He's already been buzzing around this thing for like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but he did see it, and he said, well, I'm oriented now, I think. And I said, well, look. There's another airport like, no, no, the low fuel, you know. And I had a fuel truck on site. So anyway, he um, got oriented, and we really lit the flares, and he came in pretty good. You know, we were afraid he was going to hit that house out there. That was the only thing. Nothing else. There was, even if he ran off the, the strip, there was, there was nothing there. And he landed, and but, but by the time we unloaded and refueled, I mean, the fog the fog was in there. Now that low, low, low country Alabama. I'm, I'm talking about the fog was in there, and we couldn't see hardly anything. And so Earl said, "I had these two real pretty powerful spotlights that wrote, ran on batteries, and I had it back on the pickup trucks." He said, "Well, turn them things on and get in front of me, and you just start taking down the airstrip, and I'll follow you. And then when I'm starting to get close, you won't have to get off. You know, so." They got in front, and I was in the back with the lights. Me and uh, uh, a guy named Dutch were in the back with the lights. And we took off, and he was right behind us. And I said, we were hitting like about 85 and 90 miles an hour. And we pulled off, and he went right up and pulled right up. And we couldn't even see the front half of the plane for the fog. It was like, and he took off. The way he went, refueled, the way he went, we made it, you know. 
which I thought that was a great feat of flying. I mean, but we'd been buzzing around that thing for a good damn near about 45 minutes. I mean, between him coming across and all like that. And then he wanted to leave it. And we sort of gotten a little thing there, but but we couldn't I couldn't afford to be leaving that plane on that strip, not with what was happening out there. But that was the last big plane I ever did. Derry Ferris continued his career as a smuggler, though now with smaller aircraft and at ever-increasing risk to his personal freedom. There was the time he had to escape from the bathroom window of a hotel as agents converged looking for the man he was there to meet. And later, just as with his friend Marty Rollins, his luck ran out and he was arrested and served two years in prison. And the money from the successful runs? Forty years later, Derry Ferris recalls that too much of it went for cocaine and strippers, and that somehow, the rest of it just seemed to disappear. Derry Ferris and Marty Rollins depended on pilots and planes to make their smuggling businesses possible. Along the way, some of those pilots ended up in prison. Some died at work. And perhaps some pocketed good pay from their flights and used the proceeds to start their own companies. And that included flying businesses on airports throughout the country. But that's another story. Fly by Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson with additional music by Abe Stites. Show art is by Aini with additional design by Abe Stites. The show is produced and hosted by Charles Stites with editing by Abe Stites and additional audio support by Resonate Recordings. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe to Fly by Night wherever you get your podcasts. For photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.